Hello and welcome to the Harvest Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We are honored that you would click on this and listen to God's Word preached by one of our elders. At the same time, we strongly affirm the biblical mandate for Christians to be a faithfully active and in-person part of their local church. This sermon cannot and will not replace what a local church can provide to the life of a Christian. That being said, we hope that this sermon challenges and encourages you in your faith and that it builds upon the faithful ministry of your local church. We hope that you enjoy. God bless. We you open your Bible with me to John chapter 2? Pray you'll bear with me this morning. I have been fighting the the stuff in the throat and the nose, and you understand because you live in the same climate I do. John chapter 2, verses, uh, we'll start in verse 12. Uh, Nate was asking me what my sermon title was for this week, and the best I could come up with was boom. And uh, yeah, that, that didn't, that wasn't too good. Uh, so <laughs> uh, we just, we just put the scripture. <laughs> was, uh, you don't really have a very creative guy up here. So uh, you name it what you would like to name it after the morning. Uh, but we'll look at the passage and God willing, uh, receive God's grace from it. A couple questions I want to ask you before we begin to read it. This morning as we worship Jesus and we contemplated our salvation, our Savior, what is it that you think about when you think about Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth. What comes to your mind? What characteristics of Jesus come to your mind? How would you describe Jesus? How do you describe Jesus when you talk about it? Maybe with your kids, your grandkids, your your nieces, your nephew, your friends, your co-workers. How do you describe Jesus? How do you think about Jesus? Who is it that you think about when you worship, when you pray? One of of my favorite book series is the Narnia series uh, by C.S. Lewis. Lewis. And on one of those books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, is uh, the children are... leaving at the end of their adventure they're going in a field and they see a white dot in the distance in this field and as they get closer they find out it's a lamb in the distance it's a lamb as they get in that lamb has created a dinner for them have prepared um, a dinner or breakfast excuse me a breakfast and c.s lewis uh, clive stevens is definitely playing off john chapter 20 when uh at the resurrection i love that account when peter you know they're on the boat fishing that night and peter throws off his cloak he goes true force gump nature on it you know he throws it off and runs the captain dan swims to him you know you know the move okay that's kind of what peter does he throws his cloak off he jumps in the water to swim to to jesus and he gets there and jesus has prepared breakfast for him uh you, you remember that story and and C.S. Lewis is playing off that, that story in John 20, and this lamb, they've got to this lamb, and they start talking to this lamb about how to get to, um, of course, Aslan's country, which is heaven in, in Narnia, so to speak, and, uh, and this lamb transforms into Aslan, this huge lion figure, and uh, what Lewis is doing there is showing us that Jesus is the lion and the lamb right? Um, and we've, we've seen in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you've seen some of that gentleness and love and compassion. As Last week we talked about when Jesus was at this wedding in Cana and they run out of wine and, and Jesus in his compassion, he, 
He makes water. He creates wine out of the water there. And so we see him almost lamish there, but here we see something totally different. In the book of Revelation, John, who wrote this, we also see that lamb kind of um, motif and language. So you see the lamb that shows up in the book of Revelation. He's before the throne, and he's also called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Interesting, Revelation six nineteen, the wrath of God is referred to as the wrath of the lamb. The wrath of the lamb. So you have in the scripture, when you think about Jesus in imagery, you have the lamb and you have the lion. And here, as we saw the lamb in the earlier part of chapter 2, in contrasting this at the end, we're going to see Jesus as the lion. Is that what you think of when you think of Jesus, when you worship Jesus, when you describe him to people? Is that part of your thought about who he is? It certainly is John's. So let's go there in John chapter 2, verse 12, and he, he reads... After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things. Jesus answered to them. <laughs> it's a weird answer. I mean, he commands them. That's his answer. Destroy this temple. That's an imperative. You do this. Here, I know I hear your question, but you do this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. John gives us some editorial there. Verse 22, and therefore, excuse me, verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Hmm. So as you think about the context of this, you back up in verse 12 just real quick. Before we do that, I want to give you kind of the overall what I want you to get this morning. Um, and, and just to cipher on and think about, um, here it is. All that distracts from the glory of God, all that distracts from the glory of God, Jesus hates because he loves the Father supremely. Okay, there it is. There's the sermon. You got that. You can go ahead and take a nap for the rest of the time. All right, but here it is. Uh, all, all that distracts, all that takes away from the glory and worship and honor of God Jesus hates because he loves the Father supremely. He loves the Father supremely. Okay? So he, first, he, first, we're just going to break that down. Okay? First, all that distracts from the glory of God. And we'll see that's what's happening here. So let's set the scene. In verse 12, he, he leaves Cana. He goes down to Capernaum with his mother, his disciples, and his brothers. And they stay there for a few days. Well, what I found out, this, is a, this would have been a beautiful trip. This would have been a great time. It's about, it's about a 20-mile hike. 
I need to take about a 20 mile hike, if you know what I mean. Uh, they take about a 20 mile hike, and it's with his family members, his disciples, people he loves. It's it's beautiful. It's rolling hills. If you've ever been in like the Dakotas, you know, and there's not nothing in sight but rolling hills as far as the eye can see. It's kind of the landscape, and there's beautiful the Sea of Galilee, deep blue. That, and if, and if it was springtime, he you would have seen Mount Heron in the distance, and it would have been snow capped. I mean, a beautiful hike. What a beautiful time. And, and we know it's probably springtime because it's coming up on the Passover. And, and here he comes into Jerusalem during the Passover. And, and Passover was a big deal for Jew. You're almost commanded in a way to be there if you can. And, and people, they would prepare for a month or so. It's like Christmas. The anticipation would have just been growing for, for months for this celebration, for this festival. And I want you to think as Jesus comes with this time of anticipation, this festival, this great celebration of, of Passover. It's really like, um, uh, you know, Independence Day for the Jews. It's, it's, in a sense, how they became a people was the Passover. So this is a huge deal for the Jewish people. This was a big deal. And, and Jesus is just like a Galilean. I mean, he's from Nazareth. I mean, he's a nobody when he shows up here. He would, nobody would have been like, oh yeah, there's Jesus. No, it would have been, there's 20 more Jews walking around. <laughs> okay. This is how he starts his public ministry, in a sense. This is how he becomes known as somebody. In a way, it's this miracle, and it really is a miracle. This is his coming out party. This is how he wants the Jewish world to know him. What he does here is how he wants to be known. So in one sense, you could just say, well, hey, you know Jesus cleans the temple. No, Jesus cleans the temple. There would have, oh, I don't know, you read and you get different stuff, but I mean, there may have been at an, in Jerusalem at this time, people differ, but maybe two to 300,000 people lived in the city at, at any given point in time. But in the Passover, uh, numbers changed. It had been somewhere between a million and three million Jews. I mean, it was a ton of people there. So when Jesus comes into the temple, there's tens of thousands of people there. And he wants to make himself known. And it's not so much that he wants to make himself known. It's what he does makes himself known. And so this is how he comes out. And we're going to see, and, and here's what his, this, the line of the tribe of Judah, this is how the Lamb of God is first seen and understood. And I fear maybe we miss him today. But what is it exactly that is going on. What exactly is happening when Jesus comes? Well, look in verse, it's Passover. We taught it, it's verse 14. Let's start there. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Key words, verse 14, in the temple. And at the end, they were sitting there. Where were they sitting? They were sitting in the temple. So, people traveled to Passover, like Jesus, just 20 miles. But you remember Acts 8 when the, uh, the eunuch um, is traveling all the way from Africa to get there? To, I mean, to Jerusalem? I mean, so people are traveling weeks to get there for this thing. And they're bringing sacrifices to the temple. And, well, you can't expect them to bring a spotless, pure sacrifice from Africa to Jerusalem or from, you know, hundreds of miles away. And when they get there, to still be spotless. <laughs> I mean, that would have been quite a thing. So what were the Jews doing there? They were, they were selling animals for people to sacrifice. Nothing wrong with that. Making money off that. Nothing inherently wrong off making money for the service that they were providing. They were changing money. Did you see it there? They're money changers. Nothing wrong with exchanging money. Um, you know, you, you have to exchange money. And, um, and there were, they made a, a, 
a percentage amount over when you exchange money in other countries you either make or lose a little bit it depends on where you go right i mean the same was here they people they were making money off the exchange of money and that's nothing wrong with that nothing wrong at all um one time i was privileged i got to go to the masters um uh, on, a, on a Sunday, it was in 2013, the Masters Tournament. It was the year Adam Scott won the Masters. And I remember going there, and um, it started raining. Well, one thing you're not allowed to bring into the Masters facility in Augusta is an umbrella. Unless you have an Augusta umbrella, a Masters umbrella. Now, you know how much a Masters umbrella cost? It, it, it's more than two digits on the left side of the decimal <laughs> okay <laughs> it's a lot of money and if you look you, if you ever see umbrellas when it's raining there's umbrellas everywhere masters at augusta when it's raining somebody's making a lot of money off that deal you see uh and, and there's that they would have to of course the priests and others would have to inspect the sacrifice that people did bring and a lot of times they may inspect the sacrifice and say you know, that, that's not a pure sacrifice. That's, that's got blemishes. But we've got some over here that actually are acceptable. Anything inherently wrong about that? No. I mean, the sacrifices had to be pure. It's not what they're doing is not wrong. It's where they're doing it. What was supposed to be going on? This is in the Gentile court going into the temple. And what was supposed to be happening there in the temple, there in that court? It was supposed to be a place, Kings tells us, where God was glorified. What would Jesus say? My, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. It was supposed to be a place of contem contemplation, a place of humility, a place where someone was there to make sure they're right with the Lord, to, to think of the Lord, to worship the Lord. It was supposed to be a place of, uh, of humbling. It's supposed to be a place of quietness, reverence. Have you ever been to the grave of the unknown soldier? That's something everybody ought to go to as an American. I mean, it, it, it's somewhat touching. Uh, you, you get within about 100 yards of it, and it's silence. Why? It's, it's reverence. It's reverence for, for what you're looking at and the sacrifice that's been made. Right? And in the, in the same way, I mean, in the temple was supposed to be in an even deeper and more reverent kind of way. This is God, the creator, the savior of Israel, the one who created Israel. This is God who saved you out of the bondage in Egypt and made you who you are and chose you and gave you the Passover lamb. And so it's supposed to be a time of reverence. But when it, uh, how, how though did... This get there, I wonder. Well, it doesn't take much imagination. I imagine when they started selling the animals and when they started the money changing, I mean, it was a thing of convenience, right? People are traveling a long way. Hey, I tell you what, let's, let's get some animals ourselves, all right? And we can sell them. And that'll be easier for the people. Yeah, that makes sense, okay? Start on the Mount of Olives. We'll sell them as they come in. We'll exchange the money out there too, you know, and they'll come in, do their thing. All good, no problem. But I'm sure someone else come along and said, hey, I got an idea. What if we just bring it in the temple? We won't have to go to the bank anymore. We can just exchange the money right here in the temple court. That'll be easier for everybody. All right, let's do that. Hey, I tell you what, instead of selling the animals out there, let's just, let's just sell the animals in here too. That'll be easier too. That'll be more convenient. Let's just do that. Yeah, I'm sure there were people who said, I don't know if that's such a good idea. Because this is supposed to be a place of prayer and solitude and worship and reverence. No. 
They just do it anyways, right? And so this is what it's become. It's become loud. It's become loud. Jesus walks in, little prayer, little worship. It's become loud. You think about modern worship in the church today, in America. What characterizes most worship today? Pastor Alex um, does this and it irritates me, just so you know this, because it's hard for me. When you pray sometimes, he says, all right, we're going to take a moment of silence and then we'll pray. And he takes for about a minute of silence. And after about five seconds, I'm like, I can't take it anymore. Can't take the silence. You know, I'm the kind of person I need to be around people. Like, if I'm going to do something, write something, like, I'll tell you my favorite place to write a sermon. I love to go to Starbucks and be around people. I don't want you to talk to me, but I want to hear people. I don't know why I'm weird, okay? Just, but I need to be around people, and I need noise. I need noise. Like, I need to, yeah, hey, women, you, you know your man. You know how men are. They, I, I'll be, Renee will come in. I got the TV on. I got my laptop open. I'm watching a show. I got something playing on my laptop, and I got a podcast on my phone, and I got a book. And Renee's like, what are you doing? I'm reading. How are you reading that? Well, I'm also watching the show, and I'm doing that, and I'm doing that. Yeah, it's how we guys are. But we're not focused on it. And you think, how can they do that? Well, we can't. We just add. I I just like the noise of all of it. Really, I'm not doing anything. I just like the noise. I don't like the solitude. I don't like the quiet. It's what we need, though. It's what we all need. The contemplation. We need the silence. We need the examination of ourselves. And when Jesus comes in, he sees none of that. That worship, that kind of reverence that is supposed to be what the worship of God is about, he finds none of it. He finds irreverence. He finds a market. He finds greed. He finds ease. He finds convenience. And he's tore up about it. What is the chief end of man? Well, it's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And let me say this. What is the chief end? And that's the point here. What was the temple supposed to be? It was supposed to be a place of worship where God is glorified. In fact, the whole world is supposed to be that, right? The, the whole world and we created in his image are supposed to spread that image all over the world so that all the world glorifies God and sin that didn't happen. But the temple... The one place where it was supposed to happen. The one place people, when Gentiles come in and God's people come in, should say, that's what we're supposed to be doing everywhere. Jesus comes in and it's not even happening there. And Jesus is tore up about it. Okay, uh, uh, What's the chief end of man? What did I just say? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What's the chief end of God? What's God's greatest purpose in this world? It's the same thing that he be worshiped and enjoyed forever. God's greatest desire and purpose in this world is that he be glorified. Does that hit you weird? It hit me weird for the first 10 times I said it and the next 10 times I said it. You know why that hits you weird? Sin nature. You and I are born in a state that wants to say, we don't want to glorify God. We want to glorify ourselves." When in fact, the whole world was created and we were created to glorify him. But in sin... Our nature says, you know what? I don't think God should be glorified. I don't think that he should be able to do that because I want to be that. Hmm. And Jesus comes to the one place where that was supposed to not be so. And it is. That's what happened in the garden, right? That was the sin of Adam and Eve. 
we can be our own God. We don't have to worship him and do what he says. We can do what we want to do. Who is he to tell us what to do? Well, um, not Halloween Tuesday's coming, but Reformation Day is coming Tuesday. Did you know that's what it's really supposed to be called? Let's, let's, let's reform Halloween, if you would. Right On October 31st is when Martin Luther uh, took the 95 Thesis and he nailed it to the Wittenberg uh, church door and said, this is the thing I disagree with. And it was mostly about how much the Pope was, had no authority. <laughs> he was wrong to have any authority in, in a lot of ways. And it was about worship. All right, There's really two big things about us rebellious Protestant Baptist people here, and the reason we're not Roman Catholic is really two things. It was one about justification that we read sung about, and it was about worship. And the Reformers said it was more about worship than it was justification, because justification is a thing because worship is not. right? And justification leads to worship. And really, the Reformation was more about reforming the worship of the church more than it was anything else. Same as it was here. That what Jesus is getting at today. You know, we can point at that, but truly, friend, how much of our worship is out of ease and convenience? How much of our worship do we desire to be loud? How much of our worship comes from greed? How many times do we really stop? How many times do we really stop and say, what does God want? How has God commanded to be worshiped? That's why at Harvest Baptist Church, we, we, we don't just say this as a catchy thing, but we hope to do it. I don't think we always do it well, but we strive to observe the regulative principle. And you say, what does that mean? It means that we think the Bible regulates what we should do in worship. God will never, never be any skits at harvest. There'll, there'll never be anything, uh, you know, wild like that or any crazy. Um, we're just going to do what the Bible says to do because we believe this is God's word. And he has commanded how he wants to be worshipped. Preaching, greet each other with him and spiritual songs, the Lord's Supper and baptism and prayer. And hey, you got it. So, and it's not because we're not creative. Well, maybe it is because we're not creative, just truth be told. Uh, but it's, it's because we believe that's what God has commanded us to do. But how much is that true of my own life and your own life? So Jesus hates all that distracts from the glory of God. But the point is that he hates. Did you see it there in verse 15? Just as, what did Jesus do? He made a whip of cords. He drove them out of the temple. All of them, tens of thousands. And you say, what did he do with that whip? Well, if you're going to move cattle and sheep, you're going to have to have a whip. And I guess if you're going to move 10,000 people, you got to have a whip too. <laughs> like herding cats. You know? I mean, he's herding them out of there. He's done with it. Right? He's fed up with it. He's angered at it. He's eaten up with this zeal. And I asked you earlier, how do you view Jesus? Many of us have, a, I fear, a view of Jesus that he's this skinny little white guy with the flow and a nice beard that couldn't make many ball teams. You know? That's kind of how we view him. Well, that's not the Jesus of Scripture, is it? That's not him at all. Do you see him? What kind of man would it have taken to pull this off? A powerful one. An angry one, one full of wrath, full of anger, one that hates all that distracts from the glory of God, one that loves, but also one that hates. Luther, when he was preaching on this passage, uh, Germans must have spoke a lot with us. He says, referring to verse 17, when Jesus said, uh, when the disciples remembered zeal for your house will consume me, Luther said, have you ever had anything that really eats at you? 
Well, we talk like that too. Have you ever had anything that eats at you? Well, this was eating Jesus away. Did you see when we read through Psalm 69 earlier? Did you see some of that language may have just been like, why are we reading this? Why are we reading that David wants these people that oppose him to that their feast would kill him? Why is he praying that God would strike these people dead? Why is he praying that God would flood them and they would drown? Why? That's like, that's tough language. Why is he praying that the tent would fall over him? You know, the old country song, I'll pray for you. I pray that the pot fall over your head. I think it's an pot, not over your head, but fall on your head and that you'll get a flat tire. I'll pray for you. Okay. I mean, why are we reading that in Psalms today? Because the disciples see Jesus losing it, not losing it, but his anger being poured out, his wrath being poured. Yeah, he lost his anger on him, I guess you could say, on these people. And they, they remember Psalm 69, how David would go, when David was consumed with trying to reform the worship, and he's eat up with it. The zeal for the house of God, David was eat up with it. And he wanted all those opposing him to die. I mean, he, he wanted them to be struck by God. And they see that same kind of passion here in Jesus. What was going through the heart of Jesus? Well, he, he, when God is dishonored here in the place, one place especially, he's supposed to be honored by his people. He feels that dishonor. When God is dishonored, do you also feel that dishonor? When God is, when his name is taken in vain, do you feel that hurt, Christian? Jesus is, is, is hating what he sees. I, I think that's evident here. You know, you can tell a lot about a man by what he hates. You can tell a lot about a person by what they hate. You know, and you can tell a lot about Christ here by what he hates. We live in a time when you're not supposed to hate anything. If you hate abortion, membership, I mean, anything you come out and you say you hate, homosexual marriage, I mean, you, you name it, um, you know, misgenderization, I mean, all that. If you stand for anything today, you hate. But friend, can you see that because Jesus loves the Father, he hates here. Because he loves the Father so much, he, he hates all that distracts from the worship of him. If we really love life, then we must hate abortion. If we love all these beautiful children in here today, and all the children, then we must hate abortion. If we really love marriage as defined in the Bible between a man and a woman, we must hate the opposite. If we really love gender, male and females created by God, we've got to hate that which messes that up. And we live in a time and culture where we are told and we are convinced we cannot hate any. I did not hate, I did not say hate people because we are not to hate people. We're not to hate people at all. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and, and powers in dark places and high places. We don't hate. We don't fight against people. We fight for people. We love people. You know, but I really thought this week a lot about the saying. I think there's, there really is some truth in it. Don't hate the sinner, but hate the sin. And now that's rejected by them at face value by, by people when we say something like that and we say we really hate that because we love this. You know, and we kind of, cliches we throw around, we don't want to be known for what we hate. And we shouldn't. We should, we should be want to know, be known for what we love. But because we love, we must hate that which kills and hurts what we love. If you love your children, you hate what hurts them, don't you? Isn't that, doesn't that make sense? Friend, if you take the anger of Jesus away, if you take 
the wrath of Jesus away, can I tell you this? You take away the gospel. You know, sometimes we can talk about the gospel in such a way, we, we can kind of phrase it like this, that, that Jesus on the cross, that he took the wrath of the Father. And in a sense, we can begin to think that Jesus is full of, of, of just love and, and just grace, and he's just the lamb, and he's just kind and gentle. And, but the Father is full of wrath and anger, and, and he's, the, he's, the, he's the one righteous and powerful, and he pours all that onto the Son. That, that's, not, that's not true. It's not true at all because they're one. Now, they're two distinct persons, but they are one in essence. And the wrath that Jesus took on the cross was his wrath. He's God. It was his anger upon sin that he took upon himself. Because here we see the hate of Jesus. And you take away what happened at the cross if you take away the hate of Jesus. You also take away the final judgment. Who is it, friends, that one day will send people to hell? It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Acts 17, Paul says, Do you not know? The one that God raised from the dead, he is appointed to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the judge. He hates sin. Why is that? It's because he loves the Father supremely. Did you hear what he told those uh, selling the pigeons in verse 16? Take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of trade. This is my father's house, he said. He loves the father. You, you remember the story when he's 12 years old and he's, he, the caravan, they, they go to the Passover and then they, they come back and about, I guess, I don't know how far away they get. Parents, you, you know, you, you, have you ever had this feeling? Uh-oh, we lost one. <laughs> you ever had that? Um, well, how much more important if you lost one if you know he's the savior of the world and you've been entrusted with making sure he gets fed? Right? Like, how, how big a deal is that, right? Where, where's he at? And they go back, and you remember where they find him in the temple? And he's holding his own with the elders there in the Pharisees. And, and what's, he, what's he say to them? Did, did you not know I must be about my father's business? <laughs> I imagine Mary and Joseph walking around like, kids these days like they say the craziest things like i wonder if the neighbors are going through the same thing you know like this is odd like what's it what kind of phase is he going through now kind of you know like jesus went to his father's house and he's moving the furniture around isn't he turning tables over that's his home that's his father's home and it's not right and he's making it right Christian today, is he moving some stuff around in your life? Let, let me just supply this real quick. If he's not moving stuff around in your life, you might need to stop and ask, is he even in your life? He might be a guest around your home, but friend, is it his home? The Bible says that we're indwell with the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible goes on to teach that we are, this was going to be the end part, but I'll just give it to you now. I mean, that, that, it never goes as it's supposed to, right? It never goes as planned. But that we are the temple of God. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people, but in the New Testament, he has a people for his temple. I don't know if I said that right. I was trying to. I was trying really hard. I even practiced it this morning. I still think I got it wrong. In the Old Testament, he had a temple for his people. But in the New Testament, his people are his temple. Okay, you get what I'm trying to get at. The church is the, is, is the temple of God. You as a Christian are the temple of God. That's what I'm trying to get at. And friend, if he's there, 
I promise you, he's moving furniture around. Unless you're just perfect, unless you're just holy, unless you've just already arrived. I've seen an illustration one time. Um, it, it was this preacher, he, he asked some, some people to come up and help him. I know some of you have seen this. And he, he said, I want you to stand over here, and I, I, want you to be, I want you to be Jesus. Okay? This is Jesus over here. He brings another one over here, and he says, I want you to be Hitler over here on this side. Okay? Jesus and Hitler. He brings up another person. He says, I want you to be Paul. And he says, Paul, this person who's Paul, he says, I want you to stand where you think in terms of righteousness, there's Jesus and there's Hitler, where you think Paul was before he died. What we're at in the scale. You think he's closer to Hitler or Jesus? Well, let me just tell you, he's closer, a lot closer to Hitler than he is Jesus. Friend, where are you and I on that continuum? As you examine and think about your life. You know, Jesus is holy. This, this, this is a holy place. We are supposed to be holy people as his church. We're saved and called to a holy calling. We turn me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What does that word holy mean? You know... If you define that word, I imagine if you're something like me in our day in vernacular, you might say, it kind of means people who are holy are boring. <laughs> people who are holy are unapproachable. <laughs> or that word makes me think of those things, right? That kind of that better than thou kind of person. But that's not what the Bible means when it says holy. When the Bible talks about holiness, it, it talks about in the Old Testament a lot. There's pots and pans that are holy. There's furniture. There's candlesticks that are holy. What's all that about? Holiness means to be set aside for a specific person, purpose by God. To be set aside for God's use. Single. Like, the only thing this pot does is this in the temple. The only thing this candlestick, it can't be anywhere else. It's God's candlestick. It goes right here. That's all that it does. It's holy. It's got one single purpose. Right? You and I, as God's people, are called to holiness. Whether we eat or drink, to glorify God. We're called to one purpose in all that we do. One, holy people in all things. Friends, you examine your life this morning and I examine mine. Where do we line up like that? Where do we line up in uh, multi-purposeness? Or are we singular focused? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Verse 27 we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Paul writes as he speaks about the Lord's Supper. And, and what was happening here in Corinth is that when they were taking the Lord's Supper, the church was made out of slaves and servants and rich people and poor people. And of course, the slaves and the servants, they had to work during the day. And the, and the, the richer people, they didn't have to. And so they would meet during the day and have the Lord's Supper without everybody. They would eat, and, and some of them get married, apparently even get drunk, and, and have their own time, and they would not wait. They did not consider the whole body of Christ. They were not taking in consideration those of their fellow believers. They were not committed to one another. They, they were not considering the body of Christ. The church for them was not that important. They were more individualized. You know, if you look at Christianity Day in America, it's much of the same thing, isn't it? Individualized. I don't, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. True. True. Saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But friend, anybody saved by faith alone in Christ alone. 
has been made a new creature. If you made a new creature, you have a new family. And here is as much as the Lord's Supper is about God giving himself to us. The Lord's Supper's really got two parts to it. It's really the first part and the most and, and should start out with it's Jesus giving himself to his people. Here's my body, here's my blood. And the question as we receive it is this, are we giving ourselves to him? Holy. Are we coming and saying, "Lord, here I am. Here's all of me. Do with it what you will." Are we doing that? And one way that we can see that is, are we a part of his church? Are we committed to a local body? And look what he says here in verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And what was this unworthy manner? It was, like I said earlier, they weren't considering one another. They weren't, they weren't loving one another. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged of the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Friend, who condemns the world? Friend, it's Jesus. He's the judge of the world. But friend, today at the Lord's Supper, we're, we're called to, what did Paul say? Judge ourselves, And judge ourselves in, in two ways. One, are we the Lord's? Do we have faith in Christ? Have we accepted that which the Father's offered us, which is the Son, who's taken our sins on His behalf? Have we turned to Him in true repentance and faith? And then secondly, are we committed to one another? Are we committed to serving one another? That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. So here at, here at Harvest, we, and in the last month, we've, as we've talked about the Lord's Supper coming, we've said, you know, here at the Lord's table, we, we've asked that it, you know, it's, it's for the members here at Harvest Baptist Church. And, and just said, hey, and, and, and we said to people, if, you, if you've, if you've thought that you, you want to partake in the Lord's Supper, but you're not a member, because why do we know about our members here at Harvest? We know they're committed to one another. They have to sign the covenant. They have to pledge that I'm here committed to the other member. I'm here to love them and care for them as I'm here to love and worship the Lord. And, and we've also uh, said, if you desire to, to be a part of the body, and maybe you've not yet, you know, you're more than welcome to take with us. What we want to ask people is two things, clearly, is how are you discerning the body of the Lord? Number one, have you received Christ? And number two, have you considered your relationship with his body here on earth, which is the church? Because all Christians, we are called to be a part of a local body. So this morning, as you consider those things, let us have a time of prayer before we go into the Lord's Supper. Father, as we go into this time, and I pray we have started in examining ourselves, asking ourselves, trying to be authentic and trying to be real with ourselves. Father, would your Holy Spirit, I believe you've been doing that already this morning, but would you continue during this to, one, it be a time of examination?
It'd be a time of looking at ourselves to see where we stand with you. What rooms in our life have we closed off? What details of our life? What times in our schedule? What things in our life have we put in the wrong place? Where have we put good things in place of the best things? Where are our priorities? Where is our worship? How many things have we forsaken because of ease or convenience? How many times have we just tried to make things loud instead of time of reverence? We have seen, Father, how much your son hates irreverence and how much of that I know I have in myself. How much of that we all have. But, Father, we come knowing that we come to you not by our own works, but the works of Christ. And that if we confess our sin, that you are just and righteous to forgive us of all of our sins. So, Father, as we examine our relationship with you, must we also examine our relationship with one another? How are we loving one another? How are we committing ourselves to one another? How are we serving one another? Father, maybe there's some relationships we need to make right. One, maybe there's sin in our life between us and you that we need to repent of. Two, maybe there's sin and hurt feelings or gossip, whatever it may be, between us and others that we need to get right, that we need to repent from, that we need to turn from. Father, the Lord's table, it's a time of joy where we are communing with your Son, as by the Holy Spirit he comes and is with his people and we get to touch and feel his love and sup with him and what a joyous occasion it is but what a sobering time it is as well for we are communing with the same Savior that turned the tables over in the temple the same Savior that made that whip the same Savior that took the nails on that cross Savior who loves you supremely Father, do we also love you supremely? Show us our own hearts during this time. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website, harvestbc.church. If you would like to contact us, please email us at contact.harvestbc at gmail.com or you can call us at 706-780-2211. If you are looking for a church home or visiting the North Georgia area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday morning. 9.30 in the Fellowship Hall for breakfast and Sunday school, and then at 11 a.m. for our Lord's Day worship service. We hope that you have a great week. God bless.